Yeah, I just want to say it's really good to see you. You know, I, it's I, good I, to I, see you. I'm yeah, I mean, delighted like, that we reconnected. I know. I mean, <laughs> I when I saw your book coming out, it just reminded me of CC and teaching CC, and I and I was reading yeah. through it, and it mentioned that you became director in two thousand eight right yeah of, of cc yeah. that was my first year teaching cc oh wow and so i taught for three years um one two years at the end of grad school and then one like yeah. postdoc as a postdoc uh, yeah yeah and i didn't realize that you had you had just started as yeah, well just, as being a director yeah. because you seemed so in control and i was like okay <laughs> i'm just gonna follow what roosevelt does because <laughs> he knows what he's doing this is no politics at the dinner table i'm tony biancasino and I'm Amit Prakash. This week, we have on an old colleague of mine from Columbia University, um, the former director of the core curriculum, Roosevelt Montas. He just wrote this book. It's getting a lot of press. Um, it's been reviewed everywhere. And you got to read it. And I can't wait to talk to him. Let's go. So we are so happy to have on the podcast this week, um, Roosevelt Montas. He's currently senior lecturer in American studies and English at Columbia University. Um, and he was the director for the Center for the Core Curriculum at Columbia College from 2008 to 2018. Um, and he's on with us today to talk about this really interesting and very widely reviewed book um, that he's just recently published uh, with Princeton University Press called Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. So Roosevelt, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Amit. Thank you, Tony. It's really great to be here and it's great to reconnect with you, Amit, after yeah. of the, all these years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... This book is a defense of what sometimes goes by the name of great books programs, and you offer a number of arguments as to why such programs um, must exist and indeed should be you know, properly funded and protected and so on. Uh, and the book devotes itself in its various chapters to kind of like object lessons um, on the importance of some key thinkers uh, that illustrate this, right? So Augustine... Um, three Greek philosophers, Freud, and then Gandhi. And so I was wondering, just to sort of set up a little bit, for those who haven't yet read the book and aren't familiar with the core at Columbia, could you just give us a brief sketch of what it is and why, why what you call liberal education is so important? Great. Um, thank you. Um, Great books is has kind of a, a, a cultural currency, and there was a, a moment there where there was something called a great books movement with a kind of a publication program, and uh, I think that it's some radio broadcast, etc. Um, but the the basic idea is of organizing a general education program that is the portion of an undergraduate degree that's not devoted to the major or to a pre-professional or professional pursuit, kind of the thing that is taken in common by all students, general education. Um, the idea of organizing general education program significantly around the study of major works in usually because we're talking about the United States Western political, literary, aesthetic tradition. Um, Columbia kind of innovated that idea back in, in, in 1919. Uh, it started a course 
called General Honors that initially was an honors course, as its name suggests, for upper class men then. They were all, all males. Uh, with this idea that why don't we have these students read one classic work each week and discuss them as if they had been kind of recent publications. You know, what did, what did you think of it? Kind of a generalist, fresh take, non-scholarly, uh, non-reverential um, reading of the text. Um, Columbia started uh, doing that and eventually extended that course to all undergraduates and uh, reshaped its 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 founding course of the of the core curriculum, which was called Contemporary Civilization, to be a, also a so-called great books course. Um, many schools adopted that model, and um, the University of Chicago um, immediately and most prominently, probably, and from there, uh, St. John's College in Annapolis, eventually St. John's College in Santa Fe, and many other schools adopted this um, this model of doing general or liberal education around the study of works of major cultural and historical significance. Many uh, schools have um, withdrawn from those types of programs and they exist still. Chicago has a, a program that um, still harkens in, in significant ways, at least to that. Columbia, of course, maintains it. Uh, there are many smaller schools, often Catholic schools that have um, robust core great books programs. The large universities, um, kind of R1 universities, tend to not have programs like this. And when they do, to be kind of uh, selective honors colleges or, or programs that you opt into, such as Yale's Directed Studies program. Okay. So um, thank you for that. And then so the second part, um, and I know there's many answers to the second part, and you, you offer a lot in the book. But, you know, if you had to give like, a top three reasons or something like that. Um, if I can put you on the spot, um, you know, why do they matter? Right. Why, why, why should they be adopted? Why should they be protected? Um, why are they important for in particular undergraduate education? Yeah. It comes in the context of, of the idea of liberal education. Um, liberal education is an education that tries to equip an individual to live a life of freedom. That is, we find ourselves as human beings in this condition of having to determine for ourselves how we're going to organize our lives, to, to posit for ourselves some notion of our own good, which often is some derivative of the human good, and organize our lives at every step in accordance with that notion. That is a frightening and and, and very serious existential task that we all find ourselves in. And liberal education takes that condition seriously and says what kind of education best equips an individual to organize their lives in such a way um, as to uh, make maximum use of this, of this freedom. And of course, it's not absolute freedom. We're all constrained in all kinds of ways uh, by accidents of birth, by historical circumstances, by socioeconomic conditions, et cetera. But nonetheless, we experience ourselves as, as free. We experience ourselves as people who can organize their lives according to some conception of the good. So that means that liberal education fundamentally is concerned with this question of what is the human good? What is a life worth living? What, is, um, uh, what does it mean to live well? What is the good life? So then how do you go about giving an education oriented towards that question to general students? That is not to people who are training to be humanists or people who are training to be scholars or but to everybody, regardless of their professional aims. Um, one 
powerful ways doing it through great books. One powerful way is, is doing it through works that have traditionally framed those debates and influenced the categories with which we think about the question of the good. That is works that have grappled fundamentally with that question of what is the human good? What is the, 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 what is the good life? And that have done so in a way that people generation after generation or over many generations in different historical circumstances have found provocative and meaningful. Now that's a very wide definition, uh, but when you look at what's available through that lens, you end up with some version of the canon. That is some version of some works that are very old and that have been read by many, many people written about and have had a um, kind of an outsized impact in the way that our culture, our language, our thinking, our, our kind of uh, moral, aesthetic human apparatus has, has, has been organized. Okay. So you mentioned in the book that the great books are not a sort of set list. And, in, you know, and of course, Columbia every three years or so sort of revisits, you know, the list. Uh, to, and it sometimes doesn't change and sometimes it changes at the, at the margins and right. so on. Um, so it's not necessarily about a sort of static canon, but a sort of living, breathing canon that is sort of deliberated upon by right. by, by the teachers and so on, right? Right. Um, what would you say to the argument that the canon itself, right? So on the one hand, there's this argument about this is the tradition, right, that we've inherited, and these are the sort of framing categories by which, whether we like it or not, are going to have to negotiate our our lives as sort of you know, agents in the world and, and sort of in terms of civic participation and all these other things. Um, what would you make to the argument um, that some historians have made um, that the canon itself, as we've received it, is a sort of fairly recent invention, um, that this has been sort of cobbled together? And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, there's been some sort of interesting work done around late 19th century Oxford where they get like super into the Greeks, <laughs> you know, like they get really into Greeks and really into Rome and you got to learn Latin to get into Oxford and that sort of thing. And why? Because they want the Pax Britannica, just like the Pax Romana, right? They, they, right. They're, they're right. the British empire. They're aping the Roman empire. So they're like, okay, you got to read Cicero, you know? Right. right. Um, and so they're sort of caught, it's not necessarily their tradition per se, but they're sort of just foisting it upon themselves. So it gives them some gravitas. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, so what would you say to that argument that, okay, right, there's why these, these, these same books. So why say like start with, and I think there's good arguments to start with the Republic, right, but right. one could ha have that sort of counter argument. Like why start yeah. with that when yeah. there's a lot of good stuff out there um, that could be incorporated. That's more um, contemporary, quote unquote, diverse, whatever, whatever, whatever yeah. sort of modern tag you want to put on. Yeah. It. Um, a couple of things to respond to that. Well, one is that the further you go back in the past, the fewer, you know, the, the, the less diversity there is, the fewer options you have. So, you know, if you're thinking about 5th century BC, there isn't that much there. Um, and um, if you're thinking of 1950, then you then, then there's a lot and the, the, the debate then, then changes fundamentally. Um, but... This kind of historicist, um, contextualized cultural reading of the role of the canon, um, the first thing I would say that is that it's not, 
incompatible with a consideration of the canon in, in the way that I have framed it. That is, both things can be true. Um, and in fact, that kind of critique will apply to all kinds of institutional elite culture. That is, you can, you can think about the institution of the university in similar terms, that at some point it becomes embedded and an extension of broad scale cultural leanings and, and, and projects. And in the case of, of, of Britain and in the case of um, much of Europe and, and, and in some sense the United States, that's going to be involved also in kind of colonialist en endeavors, um, the, the a kind of cultural hegemony that, that, that for much of the 19th and 20th century, Europe and Euro-America tried to impose on, on the world in some ways continues, obviously. Um, so you are going to have that, that, that um, kind of implication mm -hmm. of the canon as a form of elite discourse, as a form of cultural capital within the societies. Um, that's going to be there. And, and, in, and so, so the, critique, the critique doesn't invalidate, doesn't, uh, although many people take it that way, take that critique to say, if that critique is true, then this, not, this is not worth our time. Uh, on the contrary, because that critique is true, it is, it is more worth our time because we understand something fundamental about the shape of our culture, about the distribution of power, about ideology. Um, and the fact is that the tradition doesn't speak univocally. Right. You know, the tradition is not ideologically cohesive. You can take that tradition to expound, you know, European imperialism and white supremacy and, and, and authoritarianism. You can take that tradition to advance ideas of human rights and, and, and freedom of conscience and democracy and gender equality um, and, and racial inclusion. Um, so the, 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 the canon itself has been implicated in all kinds of power and power and cultural projects, but it is not, um, it is a function of the way that society works. It is a function of the way that historical forces shape the world. Um, and, and there is no, there is no escaping that. Um, but again, it, that, that does not invalidate the usefulness, the value, the significance that an education grappling with those texts and those questions has. Uh, my, my argument, obviously, is that it is an extraordinarily powerful form of education, maybe the most powerful form of general education that we have um, available to us. Right. And I mean, one of the things that I think that is really important about your book and what the argument that you make is that if we take this argument that the, maybe these books shouldn't be read um, and shouldn't be sort of handed down to the sort of general population of students because they're elitist or whatever, the fact remains that this sort of elite discourse will then become ever more the province of elites um, and be, <laughs> and it's a sort right. of a vicious circle, right? You know, right. that, that right. And, and all of the sort of the wonderful elements of a fully realized interior life and lively mental life that can just come by, you know, right. reflecting and things like that, that you gain right. out of this become the, the privilege of the privileged. Yes. Right. So, yeah, and, it, and that's a real problem. Yeah. It's one of the things that I've, be, that, I, that I've become really sensitive to. Um, and that I try to take on very directly with the book. Um, it's rooted in my own experience, right? I'm a, I'm a, immigrant from the Dominican Republic. 
um, in addition to kind of the usual kind of disadvantages that the cultural disadvantages that come with being an immigrant that is from coming with a culture language um, point of view that is that is a minority in the culture you have to kind of figure out what the what the mainstream is in order to be able to play that game so uh, uh, apart from that I it was a rural I grew up in a rural village um, with my parents didn't uh, my father didn't even attend high school but my mother didn't didn't graduate high school um, and came to the United States to New York in the mid 80s etc and and had you know a, a very very difficult marginalized disempowered um, in, you know socially disempowered marginalized uh, life until until probably college and beyond and I've become very sensitive to the idea or to the trend that 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 steers students like me students who are uh, people of color, first generation, low income, people who come from so-called marginalized communities to steer those people away from this kind of cultural capital. That is from, from, from the, the kinds of tools that this form of mental, critical, humanistic cultivation entail. Um, it, is, it is, I've come to think of it it's often motivated by good, good intentions. It's often motivated by the idea that you know someone like me ought to ought to see themselves represented in the in the canon. That someone like me ought to read books that speak more closely to my lived experience, etc. Often motivated by, by by very good intentions. Often also motivated, and these are not incompatible with the good intentions, with a kind of intellectual condescension, with a kind of sense that you you know. Dante and Shakespeare might be appropriate for your wife, who was a American, grew up in Michigan, but not for you. Um, and sometimes that gets dressed up in an identity argument. It's because she's white and because you're white, but and, and you're not. But the fact is that Shakespeare is no closer to my wife, uh, who's a white woman from Michigan of kind of Scottish and and, and Irish descent, than than he is to me. Um, nor is Dante, nor is Plato. Um, so there is a kind of cultural condescension that is that is also self-defeating um, when you steer students away from access to this kind of education. Um, because, uh, you know, at least that form of the critique singles out a particular kind of individual to says, mm -mm, that education is not for you. And, and we should just be aware of the, his the historical meanings of that. Um, because this has been an education that has been by various mechanisms um, denied those populations. And now it's almost like that same, it's like a meme that's hard to kill and dresses itself in different <laughs> ideological persuasions to, uh, to come and, and, and have the same impact, which is to maintain this, this repository of, of, of cultural tools, um, in, in the hands of an elite. Right. What you just said reminds me, I think it's a line from CLR James who said, Beethoven is not German, he belongs to the world now. Right. right? You know, right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's yeah. the same sort of thing. With yeah. A lot of these texts, yeah. Right? There was, um, there's a famous line, it's a very, very similar, comes to my mind, where Sol Bello, um, in a kind of rant, asks, in a probably racist way, I mean, I We'll go back and forth, but he was just like misspoke or something. But he says, you know, who is the Tolstoy of the Zulus? Um, right, right. And 
somebody came along later on, a journalist, and said, you know what? Tolstoy is a Tolstoy of the Zulus. Um, Tolstoy is that Tolstoy is Tolstoy. Right. Yeah. Of the Zulus as as well as of the Russians. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's just, that's just the nationalism talking. <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> <laughs> Tony, you want to jump in here? Yeah. I have a couple questions. One is, um, you know, when you say these, these books sometimes go under attack by whomever, you know, whether it's, you know, rich elites or, you know, the mob, um, how is that changing with technology? Because, you know, it seems like as technology progresses at a rapid pace and we're more connected than we ever have been and the, the spread of misinformation and information um, taken out of context, seems like things, uh, I'm wondering how it affects the debate over some of these books, you know, to cite like, um, you know, there, there are people that could be triggered by Shakespeare because of the, um, you know, things going on today. Um, there, there are people that are triggered by Abe Lincoln because, you know, he had views a few hundred years ago that don't work today. So yeah. how is that, how is the technology and, and the connection we all have affecting kind of the books? The right. List? That's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, because, You know, I, I I don't think we know exactly how, um, and the impact that that the impact that technology is having to traditional forms of knowledge acquisition and cultural training, um, I think we're still trying to figure out. Like one of the things that I that I experienced in myself, you guys probably have experienced it in your own lives, and and certainly in the lives of young people you meet, is that our attention spans are changing, mm. uh, and not only the ones of kids who are kind of dig so called digital natives, but of ourselves. Um, and increasingly, um, kind of the, 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 the access points for information, the kind of the way that you feed your brain is changing, is more visual, is more immersive, um, it's, it's shorter, shorter length. Um, what impact does that have on the, on the traditional canon? Or, or, or actually the question I think is, what impact does it have in the way that we can access on the way that we digest and metabolize and, and, and approach these works. Um, and I think that's a big question. I, I should say that there is a, you know, there is a, there is a sort of neutrality to, um, to changing forms of communication that, and what I, what I mean by that is that whether, you know, take Twitter or Facebook or, podcast or video games or emerging forms of artificial reality or augmented reality, mm. um, they become different forms, different visions to articulate and explore fundamental questions that these texts explore too. Um, and in fact, they become, you know, different media through which the texts find new lives and new forms. Um, so there is a kind of adaptability to that. But the basic question of what, you know, as a freshman at Columbia, I sat down with the Iliad and I spent, you know, many hours just sitting there reading this impenetrable text, sometimes going through pages and pages and pages and just like, what? Just not getting what is going on, not caring what is going on. Um, what's going to happen to that? What's going to happen to those hours that I spent in the student lounge, uh, you know, hacking at this text? Um it's you know that's not that's not clear to me. One other thing that I would say is that 
to me, it highlights the value of this practice. That is, to me, it makes it more important that we ask our students to spend those hours in the lounge reading the book when they are um, kind of conditioned to not do that. That is, that is that we preserve a space in the development and education of a young person where that is required of them, mm -hmm. where that is expected of them, where that is rewarded. Um, so again, the, the, the question is, is, is kind of large and, and complex and I don't have a good answer for it, but um, it, it does seem to me that, that the, the practices that this kind of education fosters and the questions that it dwells on are, um, con are going to continue to be quite central to our, to our humanity and to the way we, we, we live in the world. Yeah, and I, I actually wonder, as you're talking about it, like what, what the responsibility of the educational institution is, because as college and universities progress from, say, the time my father went, who was the first in his family to go, and he had a doctorate. When he went to, when he went to university, it was to be the best at the field. It, I don't believe, it, here's a musician. So mm -hmm. money was definitely okay. not on the brain. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it was to become the best in the field. Um, as kind of what I think is like the great reckoning with college in this country specifically, um, is that we kind of, we're kind of opening our eyes that some of it's a bit of a scam. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, mm -hmm. the, the tuitions, you know, put you in debt mm -hmm. your whole entire life. And mm -hmm. if you want to get in, if you want to read Dante, if you want to get really into Shakespeare, you're probably going to have a lot of debt to, for the rest of your life. So I'm wondering, are there other countries where this, the, the, the great books are under a, a, a bit less of an attack because maybe life, you, you could maybe teach Shakespeare and have a nice living and not have to worry <laughs> about paying the bill. So yeah, I wonder if it's a, a yeah. bigger problem in America than other places. Well, a couple of things to say about that. America is kind of unique in its, in its, tradition in its liberal arts tradition at the college level um in most other places you don't even have the opportunity to have a humanistic general education as part of your college training you know you you go in to specialize and you only take classes with people who are on the same career track that you are etc although some schools some schools i've worked with have um put in place or are putting in place kind of liberal arts experiences as part of their college and that's kind of really exciting and really interesting um, the more basic question that I hear about the kind of um, e the economics of higher education in the United States and the pressure that that puts on students, particularly low-income first-generation students, the pressure it puts on them to think of college as a kind of transaction where I am going to go and get a credential and get skills that are going to allow me, A, to pay back the, the loans that I might have had to take to get that education, and B, to get myself out of poverty and get maybe some of my family out of poverty and maybe make contributions to my communities that I wouldn't be able to make otherwise. Um, there is something you know profoundly broken about the U.S., um, the financial architecture of U.S. higher education. Um, Part of what's broken about it is just how confusing it is. 
um, how impossible it is to 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 for a layperson to figure out exactly what college costs. For example, I I, I had a um, had a lovely email yesterday, a day before yesterday, from uh, a young man, twenty, who's a community college in a in community college in Alaska and works a, a construction job, a construction worker, takes takes classes in a community college. Um, and he is looking to transfer to a mainland, um, is it, is it, is it mainland, what you call the, the, the contiguous lo- continental, lower, the lower, 40. the lower 48. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lower 48, um, transfer to, to a four year college in the lower 48. Um, and one of the things that I, I told him when I replied to his email, I was, I was very moved by how powerfully he, um, connected with the themes of my book and 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 how sincere his desire for a for a liberal education of the kind I describe is. Uh, one thing I, I said to him is make sure you don't f- allow you make sure you don't fall for the idea that you can't afford a school like Columbia uh, or or one of the elite or very expensive schools because it so happens that the most the most expensive schools are often also the richest schools. And the most expensive schools will often have the most generous financial aid packages. So in fact, if you're a low-income person who gets into Colombia, you're going to pay way less money than if you're an upper middle-class person who gets into Colombia. Uh, I came to Colombia as a low-income person and essentially did my undergraduate school for free. And any low-income person that gets into Colombia or Yale or Princeton or Harvard does their undergraduate education virtually for free. Um, so it's, it's part of the thing that's broken is that it's absolutely bewildering people you just don't know how much college is going to cost you have no <laughs> idea how much college co- how much college costs um and that that, that of course is a it's, it's a powerful disincentive to low-income people to to even reach for the for the expensive schools but anyway um one last thing i want to say about the economics of college which is that people often confuse the idea of general education which i advocate with majoring in the liberal arts um and I advocate for a liberal education as the basis of every college education. And I like liberal arts majors. I teach them. I was one myself. I encourage people who are interested in it. But that's not what we're after. What we're after is not to have more art historians or more historians or more literary critics. Uh, what we are is to have more engineer after is to have more engineers or doctors or lawyers or computer programmers or nurses liberally educated. We want liberal education to be not one among many specializations in higher education, but liberal education to be the thing that brings together all of the specializations. I think that is at the basis of all the specializations. Okay, so um, I had a question that we've addressed in some ways, but basically, it's a question that that I'd like to hear what your thoughts on, like because you obviously are bearing the brunt of this in various ways. Is there a lot of attacks on what you're calling for, right? Um, in your book, you talk about intra attacks by the institution itself that the research universities. I didn't know this. The story about Columbia 
you know, airing the idea of getting rid of the college itself at some point, <laughs> just like, yeah, let's just do the research. Um, so that, that, you know, that Columbia, Harvard, I mean, it's, it's crazy that that, that was even in, in the conversation, but so you've got institutional pressure, right? Right. Um, you've got, and this is, I think what Tony was getting at too, you've got maybe a combination of parents and students who are like, what's this for? You know, like, so what, this is a lot of navel gazing, you know, I, I want to, you know, get a job, right. I'm here to get, 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 the diploma to get the job so I can go to the nice restaurant, right. you know, like right. that's, 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 that's what they want. Um, then you've gotten, we've addressed this to a certain extent, which is like, this is all too Eurocentric, right. And this is right. anti antithetical to all the, you know, DI efforts going on at, at right. all these institutions. And then you got like professors like, uh, Louis Menand who, you know, who, who are like, have this sort of sneering view yeah, of, of your book. And that says basically, and he's got this crazy argument. That's it's like, the yeah, only specialists should teach these texts. Um, and, you know, I guess that means down with a broad humanities education from one of America's leading humanists. I really don't understand his argument, but you, you got that there, right? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of battlefronts and I'm wondering, you know, how, what is your response to those? I mean, is, I think, you know, one of the, I think the greatest response that I took from your book is that what this does is, you know, this type of education leads you on the path, um, that is endorsed by Socrates in, in the apology, right? Right. right. Lead in the, the examined life, life is the one worth living, right? Everything right. else is rubbish. Right. Um, and, and, and if you can sort of get into that, there's all these different ways in which you can get into these, these, these texts yeah. and they're going to yeah. enrich your lives. Yeah. Um, and so I find that to be like a very powerful defense, <laughs> but I, I'm wondering in terms of these sort of specific ones, like, Hey, you know, we need like in a, an Italian department and a Dante specialist to teach the Inferno. Otherwise you're not getting it right to the two you know, students who will go take the Dante seminar. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. Not for everybody. Right. So like, what, what, what is your response to that? Yeah. Um, thank you. Sometimes I think about, sometimes I think about the, the challenges as being into, into broad buckets. One are, are kind of the inside challenges and the outside challenges, mm. uh, the outside the outside challenges are kind of embedded in our in our culture, in our in 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 capitalism, in um, the menta the transactional mentality of education, the a long tradition in American educators of of asking for what's practical, of thinking about education as you know, forget about the letters and philosophy and debates. Give me what I need to know, right? Give me the practicality. So the, there's there's a kind of set of uh, outside challenges, and there's a kind of political dimensions to that. Higher mm -hmm. education has a, uh, uh, I think, a to some extent deserved uh, bad reputation in the general public, um, which is kind of a low opinion of higher education. There are political challenges, kind of massive defunding of state of state education, particularly massive defunding of programs that are not practical. So there's a you know various kinds of challenges on the on the outside and then there are challenges on the inside some of which are ideological like uh, you mentioned um uh, a rejection of the idea of a of an old canon which is going to be a less diverse canon it's going to be a patriarchal canon it's going to be an elite canon kind of rejection of that on ideological grounds um there are institutional pressures where 
the universities are dominated by disciplinary uh, concerns and disciplinary research. You make your career as a professor by, by studying narrow questions and engaging with other professionals in the field and in a way speaking past uh, general concerns. Um, in fact, you, you, your job is to engage this very uh, rarefied, engage in this very rarefied conversation. Uh, so that if, if that's your job as a professor, then stepping into a classroom to teach general doesn't prepare you or encourage you, inspire you, um, incentivize you to go and teach general education courses. Um, then there is this very, very, I think, critical um, internal challenge, which is the one that, that uh, Louis Menand articulated in his, in his review in The New Yorker. Um, which is a view of liberal education that that sees it in, in as he calls it in the in the business in the knowledge business um, that is a view that 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 says that the business of undergraduate education undergraduate general education is about building expertise is about building knowledge as opposed to a model that says the business of undergraduate general education is to make produce people. Is, you, we're in the business of citizen and individual production rather than in the business of knowledge production. This is at the undergraduate general education level. Um, graduate school is a different, it's a different issue, right. it's a different beast. Even majors is a different beast. Undergraduate general education. Um, the university has come to be dominated by expertise. The research university, the model of the university that says that the, the point is to investigate to create new knowledge, to codify, disseminate that knowledge. That's the dominant, the dominant model. And it works very well in the sciences. It has delivered to us the modern world. And you might have problems with the modern with the modern world, but we, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that we wouldn't give up. Yeah. You know, man, I in love the modern examples. world. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, um, that same model of the generation of new knowledge, the accumulation, dissemination of knowledge has been brought to the humanities, has been brought to the liberal arts, and it simply doesn't work. Uh, the fundamental questions of the liberal arts, um, which are the great moral, existential, social dilemmas in which every individual finds him or herself. Ultimately, the meaning of a good life, the meaning of a full uh, human life. These are not questions that are susceptible to the kind of accumulation of knowledge and resolution that scientific questions are, but they are the lifeblood of the humanities. And because the knowledge regime inside the university is about the accumulation and the buildup of knowledge, you have humanists who have kind of carved out little knowledge production uh, pigeonholes and have built their professional identities around that and see themselves as that, that's, that being their job. Um, it seems to me that that, that, that approach to general education is in large part responsible for its academic demise. The liberal arts and the humanities are in an academic crisis, in an institutional academic crisis. It's not a real, that it's an institutional crisis. Out there, the humanities are thriving. Um, they're, they're both reading groups, but also in, in the arts, in film, in theater, in music. I mean, the, there's they're as vibrant, maybe even more vibrant than, than, than they have ever been, the humanities and the liberal arts in the real world. But in the university, they're withering. And part of why they're withering is because of this 
model of expertise, this model of knowledge generation as uh, having infiltrated the task of undergraduate general education. Right. Okay, I've got I've got a theory that I want to test on you, Roosevelt. Because so I was th- we're, it's based on this conversation actually. So Tony was talking about how technology might have like you know transformed how people are responding to or uh, uh, being able to access this. Right? Just just the sort of simple act of reading a book is like a revolutionary act these days if you read it cover to cover, um, and. So one thing is that I've noticed, and it's completely anecdotal, it's not scientific at all, but I'm going to say it anyway, is that over time <laughs> I've, been, I've been teaching for, you know, I've been teaching high school and college for about 20 years now. And um, my college career, starting with Columbia and then uh, going now, now, now here at Middlebury, what I've noticed over time is that the responses I get on my teaching evaluations um, if I ever get any negative ones and there are very few, I will, I will add, but, but, but if I ever get, you know, the negative ones, it used to be like something, Oh, like I didn't like when we did this in class. Right. Or I didn't like the prompt to this, you know, paper or whatever. And now consistently the, the one thing that I get sort of wrong on my teaching evaluations is like the readings are too long. And if anything, over my career, I've lessened the amount of readings because, you know, fresh out of graduate school, you're like throwing books at them. (laughs) You will suffer like I did. Right. Right. Um, And 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 now it's like, okay, you know, less is more. And, you know, we'll we'll, we'll, you know, we'll be sort of very sort of targeted about it. So I'm giving less reading. Yeah. But I'm getting more complaints about too much reading as my career has progressed. So that's that's one. Right. And then so if that's the case and then you have the argument against these books, which actually ask you to stew in these questions for a while, right? And perhaps leave them without any resolution, right? Famously, Mm -hmm. we don't get the form of the good in the public, right? Like, (laughs) like, wait a minute, what's the ending? Um, So, you know, like, so, you know, it's not given to us. He just asks us to ponder these things. So we get that combination leads to kind of a death of nuance, Mm-hmm. Right. And and I think mm-hmm. that is something that is infecting our culture more broadly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's a that's a sort of it's a perfect storm for that. And mm-hmm. and, and in terms of how this can help our politics, how it can help mm-hmm. our civic engagement, mm-hmm. um, you know, bring back nuance. And one way to right. one way to do right. that is, is right. through reading these books that are not easily resolved. Yeah. And we need to make that case aggressively. Um you know, I, I I just read someone who said that in order that he he thought that in order to be a political liberal, you had to be an educational conservative, hmm. um, and, and that kind of that's you know that yeah. there's something to that. Um, the fact that the liberal posture that is, and and by liberal, you know, I mean this basic notion of of preserving and enhancing human freedom and and count me in that's that's mm-hmm. i'm a liberal uh, that, that's that's what i think is our our, our our best political goal to organize a society in which individuals can maximize their freedom um in order to do that you have to be conservative about certain principles that is you have to have a a a, a um firm commitment a firm grounding in certain certain commitments um, and, and be conservative about those commitments. Um, it seems to me that 
we have um, we have kind of abandoned that uh, that clarity of conviction about about principles, um, so that let me see, let me how do I put it? It seems to me that there is a kind of like uh, militant centrism that we need to advance. <laughs> um, Part of the reason I wrote the book is because it's very rare to see the case made explicitly. People are always hedging and qualifying and giving themselves rhetorical escape routes, not committing to values or committing to a vision, not committing to a possibly wrong position, but a position that is identifiable, that's recent, and that is argued in good faith. Um, it seems to me that we need to do that um, and that part of doing that is going to be committing to a, a certain view of education. It's going to be committing to a certain view of education that places nuance, that places rigor, that places um, a certain kind of discipline at the center, at the center of education. Um, we, we, we absolutely need to do that. Um, and our moment, our political moment, the kind of discursive breakdown that we have, that we are, that we are living through is a, a testament of our failure to do that. And, and our, by our, I mean educators. We have not educated, I think, I think we have not educated, educated a democratic population capable of digesting the discursive challenges that the digital revolution has put in front of us. Uh, so one is we have, we have failed to do that. Two is we have to do it aggressively now. That is, we have to make a positive case for a certain kind of education that that is that is conscious of these challenges that that addresses them directly. I would just quickly jump in and say, "Good luck," <laughs> <laughs> because you're in it. I mean, you're you're kind of the the you're the you're the the um the test people for this because there is no reference. So I'm I'm being facetious and I'm joking, but. I don't know that you'll have that data for another 20 years. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I think yeah, even even the cell phones in kids' hands, I actually think the brains and, and behaviors are going to change so frequently and rapidly that the job of the educator to keep up with that, mm -hmm. I, I wonder if it's possible. Yeah, and, and I think it's possible, and this is why I think it's possible, because the fundamental questions that we have to deal with, mm -hmm. whether we are obsessed with our phone and our and our Instagram likes or whether we are, you know, pondering religious conversion, fundamental questions about meaning, about mortality, about the good life, um, those questions continue to resonate for people. And I think that to the extent that we ground ourselves in them and that we give people a way to access those questions in an intellectually honest way, a way to access those questions in a rigorous, serious, rational way. I think we're always going to have, um, we're always going to have a compelling case to make. Um, even, you know, even if our brains continue to be shaped and distorted by the algorithms and market mechanisms that shape our information diet. Um, 
I think I think our, our, uh, as long as we are caught in this existential condition in which we are, this condition of freedom, I think this kind of education is going to have um, it's going to have appeal. I think that answer gave me a little more hope. That was right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, and you know, this is, we can sort of wrap up here, but I think you know one of the points that you make near the end of your book. Um, remind me of a, a, of a guest we had on before, which is um, an English professor named Mike Clune, um, who wrote a book recently called A Defense of Judgment. Um, and, and, you, and you make this great point is that, okay, if we abdicate um, the ability to say that, you know, this is better than that, and I can give you sort of good reasons as to why this is the case, because right. there's, you know, we have, there's a finite amount of time in all our lives, can't read everything, but this stuff is better than that stuff, right? right. If, we, if we abdicate that, we we get into this sort of nihilism yeah that um and it's interesting you know you, you you've got i liked your your discussion about your flirtation and your romance with really uh postmodernism right. right and deconstruction right. and then your departure from it um and the way i read it and the way i've sort of come to understand it over time um is that and you you know i think rightfully so you locate it in what sort of Nietzsche has wrought in, in various right. ways, but it's like the argument has, I think one of the problems is that people took Nietzsche's polemic and read it literally. They forgot it was a polemic, yes. <laughs> you know, you know, and, and, and it's not even something that hasn't been said before, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, right. And this is the, and I kind of want to end with this because like we both taught this course and I just want to talk a little bit about teaching CC. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when, when you get to Nietzsche and CC, it's like, oh, Thrasymachus finally came back. Yes, <laughs> you know? that's right. Like, you know, and so like when you, when you read these books together in that way, you can have these sort of really deep, interesting discussions with all sorts of perspectives because there's a sort of common text and there's no fundamental right answer, but right. the sort of the, the, the demands on getting your facts straight on your textual citation, where are you getting this from? You know, is this a good faith interpretation that has so many valuable effects, yeah. right? On, yeah. on, you know, life in general, as we yes. know with fake news and whatever. Right. Um, yes. So, you know, even somebody like you get to Nietzsche, you can say, well, this is what Nietzsche doesn't mean. He's the be all end all. There's all these other things that have been said as well. Right. right. And right. that's, that's, you know, I found that really valuable that you made the argument that, you know, having a gen ed program um, in an institution these days is like a countercultural act, right? Because yeah, it's flying yeah. in the face of a lot of the the sort of the norms and forms of of, of university life, right? Right. Um, I was just I had just a basic question for you. When I first taught this course, I was absolutely terrified um, <laughs> <laughs> walking into the classroom because it's like, okay. We start with Plato and we end with like what Du Bois and, and maybe yeah. Foucault and you know, some choices Foucault, at the end. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. And you're teaching, you know, and, and like nobody's a specialist in all of this. Nobody's Nobody a has a certain, yeah. you know, it's not, 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 not possible. And then you realize that that's not what this is about when you right. do it. Right. Um, and which is another great thing about your book. You like, it's your whole book is kind of also saying it's like, it's kind of like the joke you had to be there. To like really get it, you know, <laughs> it's like it's like like the actual liberal education. You had to like be there in the conversation. Yeah, like, okay, no, yeah, I really get it. And yeah. I, to your credit, I think you sort of really get those moments in, in various points. But 
I don't know when I first taught this, I was so terrified yeah. teaching it because I thought, who am I to be, you know, teaching the Quran in week three or whatever, you know? Right. Um, right. And I was wondering what your experience was when you yeah. first taught it and, and how you feel about that aspect of it. Um, and of course, th that is the question that the expert that the kind of school of expertise asks. And it's sure, a question that sure. Menant asks very explicitly, right, you know, who are right. you to be teaching, to, to be teaching this stuff? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the first thing I would say that, that who you are is a human being that has access to the same kind of human experience and intellect that led these people to write this stuff. And that you have um, your, you know, your data is as good as theirs on the fundamental questions of what we're, what, what we're grappling about, uh, grappling with. And then in addition to that, you do have some training in general interpretation and in argumentation and in synthesis and, and, and in, um, in, in critical thinking and a certain kind of historical contextualization. So you have, you have very important general skills that allow you to, to approach a new text like that, not, not in a vacuum. Um, but that, that's just it. Um, that if these texts are great in the sense that I that 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 they are worth the attention of every undergraduate in that sense, if they are great in that sense, they are so because they speak to undergraduates in their condition as human beings, and they speak to me in my condition as human being, and it is precisely on that commonality, on the basis of that commonality, that we approach the books together. Um, it is not on the basis of my expertise, and I. Um, the the writers that I that I treat in this in this book, Saint Augustine, the Greeks, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Freud, Gandhi are, are are writers in with which I have no professional expertise. I've never taken courses about those writers. I don't read the languages in which any of those writers wrote. Um, I, I I I don't have scholarly credentials in those with those writers, and yet. Those writers were capable of transforming my life, and I see them transforming the life of students precisely because they're accessible to the students, not as objects of scholarly contemplation, but as objects of kind of human questioning. Um, and that's what general education is about. That's why you, in fact, I don't know if you had this experience, but my there's one week in CC that we spend in my in my area, which is like revolution, like the Constitutional Convention, the right, Federalist right, right. Papers, the Constitution, yep. Declaration of Independence, especially through in Frederick Douglass. That's me. That's what my PhD is on. That's what I teach in my in my disciplinary courses. And those were almost always the worst classes. I was just I was muscle bound. Yeah. I was I was just did not have the flexibility, the facility, the 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 um, freshness of the eyes that are reading this for the first time and may never read it again in their lives. Mm. Um, and you probably experienced that too. I, I was kind of laughing when I read the suggestion that it should be the Dante expert who teaches the, the um, who teaches Dante because one of the things we do in CC, as you remember well, is that every week we have an expert right. come and talk to the faculty right. about how to teach this. How to teach this to undergraduates are reading it for the first time. And you probably remember that it's absolutely hit and miss. There is a high percentage, over half of the experts, that simply cannot talk about this stuff they know in a way that is accessible or interesting to, to, to non-experts. Right. Um, expertise, in fact, is as likely to disable you from mm -hmm. teaching general education as it is likely to empower you to teach general education. Oh, that's, yeah, that, that, that is totally true. I, rem I remember, the, I love those talks. 
Um, but I remember sometimes it was like 50% was like throat clearing. And then the rest of it was like, you guys shouldn't be teaching this. <laughs> <laughs> and then sometimes they were great, but yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, we are running up on time, but Roosevelt, thank you so much yeah. for coming on. Phenomenal. Um, amazing. The book is amazing. Rescuing Socrates. Everybody should read it. Um, if anything, it'll make you run out and read the various references uh, that Roosevelt uh, drops throughout. Uh, and also the, just your fascinating life story that's told in there as well. It's woven in seamlessly. So thank you so thank much. Thank you, Amit. Thank you, Tony. I love what you guys are doing here. And it's a, it's a real pleasure to, to join you. Um, yeah, that was amazing. I mean, what a, what a super intellectual human being. I mean, I know very that's, positive. You know? That's the, that's the thing. I about, couldn't suck him into know. my negativity. I yeah, no, no. I mean, th that's the thing is that he has a lot of hope. Um, yeah. and he's, you know, he's got convictions about this stuff, you know, which is infectious, right? That That's the type of person you need in the classroom. Like you're you excited about this stuff. You right? need more teachers with that kind of conviction. I, yep. I couldn't agree more. Yep. Yep. Um, the book is really cool. Um, if we'll you put it on our website, so yeah, you for sure. See it right there for sure. Um, it's, you know, it's a one book education all the, in all these classics and you know why they matter. And, and you know, he gives you kind of like, not even a cliff notes version. It's actually like a kind of a deep dive, but he does it in a way that, you know, talks about his, his immigration story and his family and, you know, living in Queens and coming to Columbia for the first time. And, um, it's pretty awesome. So can't, can't recommend it enough. Great. Um, okay. Well, we'll be back next week. Yeah. Um, I think just me and you. Probably. I think so. Yeah. Got I a think... couple of people lined up. But... Yeah. Yeah. No Politics at the Dinner Table is produced by Amit Prakash. Um, we have beats by our good buddy, G. Baderut. Uh, go on our website. You can see all of our past guests, all of their um, books, their podcast um and then just lots of cool stuff on there uh communicate yeah. with us let us know uh any feedback we're always here that's right and just so you know the newsletter is coming out again i just put one out the other day yep. um and so sign up for that on NP your friends npdt.substack.com that's our that's our site for for our uh newsletter yep and we'll see you next week see you next week